Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, before we get into today's episode, a couple of quick updates on what's going on with the show and what's coming out next. So, last week I tried something a little bit different, and by audience selection I did an editorial episode on the history of libertarianism. Or I should say, I guess, the first part of an editorial series on that, because once I got into it I realised I had more than an episode's worth of stuff to say on it. And I've really enjoyed doing that. And I asked for feedback. I said, do people want me to do more stuff like that, or should I just stick with interviews? And so far, the feedback's been completely positive. Everyone's said that they liked it, and the viewing numbers were good, and the completion rate, so that, like, the percentage of people who started the episode, who then got through to the end, is actually pretty strong for that. Um, And then I got some more feedback, this time from Facebook, where people said, you were, like, talking about maybe spreading these out. Don't. Just do one long episode or, like, do them back-to-back. I don't want to do one long episode. I don't want to, like... As much as I like something like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which can go on for, like, four hours or something, I don't think um, we're there yet. I want to keep this show consistent to about... um, an hour max per episode, ideally about 50 minutes, so that someone new to it can sort of get involved. Um, But I'll keep the episodes close together. So I'm going to do this week's episode, um, and then its sequel. It's a two-part on Wittgenstein. And then I'll conclude, I'll do the rest of the episodes in the Libertarian series. And then we'll get back to... um, Then we'll get back to interviews. But I'll do the rest of the series in one block after this interview. But this interview actually fits in really, really, really well. So well, in fact, that I'm tempted to say I planned planned it that way all along. But uh, I absolutely didn't. But uh, it really works out that way. So in the first part of my libertarianism series, you, you, you know what word I'm going for there. Libertarianism. There we go. I can say the words of the things I'm supposedly talking to you about. In the first part, I argued that competition over the control of language is essential to understanding what political ideologies are. And I sort of waved my hand at a sort of Wittgensteinian ordinary language philosophy. In this series with Dr. Rupert Reed, who is a Green Party politician and a Wittgenstein scholar, we go into what that really means and we try to build from the ground up so that people who aren't familiar with this branch and this style of philosophy can get a taste for it and can understand what people mean when they wave their hand and say, quote, in a Wittgensteinian way. So this series, it's going to be two parts this week and next week, will be concerned with the philosophy of language, of word meaning, and then in the second part will relate how language and word meaning impacts the use of political power. Um, Having just listened to this back in edit, I'm really happy with this series. I think this first part that you're about to listen to is a really good 101 exposition of who is Wittgenstein, what is the sort of use value of his philosophy, and what does he have to offer us. So I, yeah, I hope you're as excited for this one as I am. My guest for this episode is Dr. Rupert Reed, 
who will be familiar to long-time listeners of the podcast he was on season one. Dr. Reed is at the University of East Anglia, specialising in philosophy of language, philosophy of science, and environmental philosophy. He's the author of a number of works and the editor of a number of collections, including, as we discuss in this episode, The New Wittgenstein. And as you'll hear, he's been influential in challenging some of the old ways of thinking about Wittgenstein and putting forward a new, more contiguous notion of Wittgenstein's life's work. Uh, Dr. Reed is also very active as an environmental campaigner. He chairs the think tank Greenhouse UK, and he's active in the UK Green Party and is a strong environmental campaigner. He was a, elected as a city councillor for the Green Party, and he stood in the Norwich North by-election in 2009 as the Green Party candidate for Parliament, and returned the biggest by-election vote share in Green Party history with 9.7% of the vote. He's very active on Twitter, you can follow him there, and recently he gained quite a lot of attention when one of his tweets went viral. He tweeted that he'd been asked to do a debate with a climate change denier, and even though he would be very grateful for the exposure, he refused because he thought it's about time we ended this false equivalence between the evidence for climate change and the denials of it. And that got tens of thousands of retweets and likes and whatever. So that was pretty cool. And anyway, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Reed back to the show. Like I say, I'm pretty happy with this as an ex an introductory exposition to some philosophy that I personally have found really, really valuable. So yeah, without any further preamble, it is absolutely my pleasure to introduce or reintroduce Dr. Rupert Reed. joined today by Dr. Rupert Reed. Rupert, thanks for coming back on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So you were on season one. I think it was the fourth or the fifth episode you were on. Um, you were actually, by the way, the podcast's very first Twitter follower. I don't know if you knew that, but there you go. <laughs> um, but for people who haven't checked out that episode, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, I guess both as an academic and some of your other stuff. Yes, so I teach philosophy at the University of East Anglia. I'm a reader in philosophy there. I've been uh, at UEA a long time. And I helped make into U I helped make UEA into a place that specialises in Wittgenstein's philosophy. Uh, so that's a real focus of ours and very much a focus of mine. That's been my main central philosophical interest, really, my entire uh, career. So one of the things I'm best known for is having uh, edited a book called The New Wittgenstein, which produced a, a radically new understanding of uh, Wittgenstein's uh, philosophy, drew that together. Uh, I'm also interested and have become increasingly interested in recent years in political philosophy and environmental philosophy. And I, I, so part of what I do is to sort of apply 
Wittgenstein's philosophy in those fields. Uh, and I try to reach beyond the academic world. I chair a think tank called Greenhouse, and I'm also uh, someone who tries to be active as a public intellectual and as a uh, politician. Cool. And you're... Um you're a councillor, right, for the Green Party? I used to be a councillor for the Green Party, yeah, for two terms, but not anymore. I'm a bit more focused now on uh, on the uh, philosophy and publishing and on seeking to get uh, impact for my work through other channels via um, grants, via uh, lobbying government and um, being commissioned to write reports, that sort of thing. Cool. Great. So let's let's start at Wittgenstein and then maybe at the end um, we'll have gotten back to that. Um so here's my motivation for wanting to do this episode. Um, I listen to a lot of philosophy podcasts, and I am guilty of this myself. I often hear people say something, 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 quote, in a Wittgensteinian sort of way. And often probably the audience, if they don't, you know, haven't done these philosophy courses, is left sort of wondering what in a Wittgensteinian sort of way. And sometimes I'm tempted to think that even the person who said that probably could use catching up in in a Wittgensteinian sort of way, what, yes. that, what that might mean. So let's start at the beginning. Biographically, I actually don't know anything about Wittgenstein biographically. Is there anything interesting we can say about him as a person to get us started? Oh, he had an absolutely extraordinary uh, life. Uh, and um, his philosophy, some would argue, is tied in uh, with his life. I think, by the way, that you're right, that a lot of people who take Wittgenstein's name, do take it rather in vain. It can be very frustrating to us Wittgenstein scholars. So I think it's a good idea to have this podcast episode so we can try to get a few things straight. Uh, in terms of Wittgenstein's life, the uh, definitive biography, uh, which is not perfect, but it's very, very good, uh, is Ray Monk's uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, The Duty of Genius. Uh, and Monk covers the whole uh, thing in terms of, for example, Wittgenstein being born into a extremely rich uh, family uh, in Austria, uh, one of uh, eight uh, siblings, at least two and probably three of whom uh, committed uh, suicide, which uh, Wittgenstein himself also seriously considered. Um, he um, took an active part in the First World War on the Austrian side, uh, and that had a huge impact on him in terms of waking him up really to God and ethics and, and the soul. Um, after the war, he um, renounced his uh, fortune, uh, went again to, uh, to, to England, but this time much less close to uh, philosophers like uh, Bertrand Russell and G.E. Moore, who had been his teachers before. He very much forged his, his own way. Uh, and became really, in many ways, the centre of the philosophical world, even though he published virtually nothing at all in his lifetime, apart from the early masterpiece, the Tractatus Logico uh, Philosophicus. Uh, during the Second World War, uh, he was on the uh, English uh, side, the Allied side, uh, and uh, I, I've argued that actually you can read some of Wittgenstein's later philosophy as a kind of uh, philosophy of pain and suffering and of antipathy to uh, uh, racism and anti-Semitism and so forth, i.e. the diseases of that time, the diseases of the intellect of that time. And Wittgenstein died tragically early at, uh, at 62 of uh, prostate cancer, um, which he wouldn't have died of it if he'd been alive uh, now. 
Uh, and his uh, final remark, which many have thought very surprising, given the, the extreme difficulties of much of his life, uh, was, tell them I had a wonderful life. Hmm. That's interesting. So, wait, his... Um... His latest stuff, the stuff that pe- the philosophical investigations, the language yeah. stuff, is that posthumous? Is that released after yeah, his death? Yeah, all then? published posthumously. Yeah, I actually didn't know that because that's that's what people are referencing when they say in a Wittgensteinian way to sort of loosely mean that like language is a shared good and words have different meanings and stuff like that. They're sort of waving a hand in that direction, right? Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, all of that uh, comes from posthumous work, the, the most crucial of which is the so-called philosophical investigations, uh, a lot of which he worked on very, very, very hard, um, but never quite in such a way as to uh, be finally satisfied with it. But uh, it's in a good uh, order, um, more than some of the other uh, uh, later work. I feel like I'm going to regret this question in advance because I'll just be revealing my own ignorance. But the narrative of his intellectual development. Okay, I'll give the narrative and you pick holes in it. Um, yeah. But the narrative is you get the Logicus Tracticus, which is, um, I mean, I bought it once just to sort of see it, but you know, good luck to anyone who can get through it. That That's sort of a work of formal logic. But the narrative of the intellectual development goes something like, when he was young, he was a naive who believed that words have exact meanings and that what you, what's the quote, what, what can be said exactly can be said exactly and anything else isn't really worth saying. And then as he matured, he realised obviously words um, are defined by their relationship with other words, that words can mean many different things and that language is a sort of communal good and he ends his life with the sort of broad um, ordinary language philosophy that language is a sort of distributed ground up phenomenon that people like and people feel clever when they sort of wave their hand and say in a Wittgensteinian sort of way so that's the narrative I was always sort of given of his intellectual development I have a feeling you're going to want to pick holes in that a little though Absolutely, because I think you've given a reasonably fair account of that narrative uh, as it's often told. But the thing is, it's told that way a lot less often now. Uh, and I've had a role in that. I I was, as I mentioned before, uh, one of those who put together the new Wittgenstein uh, collection, which brought together the scholars who, above all, wanted to overturn that narrative. And the kind of thing that we've been saying is that the narrative gets things wrong sort of from both ends and uh, in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me explain that. So the narrative suggests there were two distinct Wittgensteins, whereas uh, we argue the, the new Wittgensteinians or the resolute readers, as we're sometimes called, we argue that in a large extent, one can say that actually there was really one Wittgenstein throughout, that the, the discontinuities been grossly exaggerated. There are changes. There are very, very important changes uh, as Wittgenstein, uh, as Wittgenstein's career goes on. But there are changes, sort of within the nature of a of a development and a, and a sort of constructive uh, critique. Uh, there, there are changes of the nature of a, of, a, of a systemic improvement, but not of a outright repudiation in the way that it's usually taught. So. 
very roughly speaking, one Wittgenstein rather than two Wittgensteins. And also we argue that both of those two Wittgensteins, uh, so-called, have been uh, misunderstood. So you mentioned that the Tractatus is uh, is thought of as, in some ways, a work of, uh, of formal logic. But the Tractatus also, from the beginning, was was as well as that, was a sort of very poetic work and crucially was a work that in, that's in its very method. And that's the fundamental thing to understand about the Tractatus, as arguably with all of Wittgenstein's philosophy. It's method, not the conclusions he came to, not the theories he held to, because he didn't hold to any, but the method, the methods which he thought philosophy should be pursued by way of. And in the Tractatus, the method is such that the alleged theories or theses that uh, Wittgenstein was supposed to have held to in the Tractatus are already undermined, are already thrown away, to use the term he uses, by the ends of the of that work. And what remains is only um, uh, the method uh, and uh, a better sense of one's own vulnerability to uh, to temptation, to confusion, and therefore a better sense of, if you will, self-knowledge. And in that way, you could think of uh, Wittgenstein from his early work onward uh, as a kind of inheritor of Socrates. The remark that I think you were seeking to quote from the Tractatus from the preface runs, what can be said at all can be said clearly, and whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Uh, and there's a certain sense in which I would like to suggest that that remains true in Wittgenstein's later work. Uh, and the later work, which is actually the main focus uh, of uh, of we uh, new Wittgensteinians, it's sometimes thought that we're obsessed with the Tractatus, but actually, what we're really interested in is Wittgenstein's uh, fully uh, uh, mature philosophy, which most of us consider the the greatest philosophical work that that, there, that there's ever been. Um, we tend to suggest that the ways in which Wittgenstein's later philosophy is understood uh, has also been. Um, it's also been severely traduced because Wittgenstein is is uh, reduced to a series of supposed theories or theses such as um, all language consists of uh, of language games, uh, meaning equals uh, use. Um, uh, um, there, there can't be any such thing as a private language. A private language is uh, is impossible. Language is necessarily um, something shared by people in a community or, or in a in a public uh, space. And all of these kinds of ideas run the risk of being just new theses, new theories, new dogmas. And Wittgenstein's absolutely essential concern throughout his life uh, is the attempt to overcome and let go of any such dogmas. Right. I remember reading a paper of yours. Um, I'm blanking on it. It might have been the Wittgenstein versus rules that we did in our last one, where you say at every point Wittgenstein is wanting to say, do you really know that? What makes you so mm. confident at every single point? He's doing this, this, why do you think you know that? Are you really yes, sure but, of that? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, that, that's right. But but in a very different register from how a philosophical skeptic would do it. What he's wanting to to put into doubt, if you will, is nothing um, um, in our uh, ordinary or everyday uh, lives in, insofar as we escape from philosophy or ideology, but only rather the, the pictures by which we are um, possessed. 
But he does think that those pictures go way beyond philosophy narrowly considered as an academic discipline. He thinks that mathematicians are vulnerable to them. He thinks that psychologists are very vulnerable to them. He thinks, I've argued, that uh, that uh, that politicians and ideologues and so on are very vulnerable uh, uh, to them. So it's a, it's a kind of, it's a critique, if you will, of language and a critique of uh, 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 of culture, above all, a critique of uh, of philosophy, um, but it doesn't have the same kind of um, destructive uh, or certainly sceptical um, aim that has often been the case in the history of philosophy. Indeed, Wittgenstein provides a very powerful set of uh, of ways of overcoming or at least reckoning with um, uh, the sceptical uh, impulse, and he thinks it's a kind of typical philosophical mistake to think that scepticism shows that you know we don't know that other people exist, that we don't have any knowledge or anything like that. He thinks that's all kind of philosophy uh, gone, uh, gone too far, uh, gone to town. Right. He's not doing the how do you know that chairs are real thing that people do just for the sake of playing that game. But let's, yeah. let's start with a bunch of the stuff you referenced. So there's a number, you mentioned word games, the other one would be like family resemblances, private language. I mean, maybe we can pick some of these off one by one, but let's just try and go back to, like, the framing of this in terms of, like, what words of advice would you offer to, I don't know, like a first-year philosophy student approaching this for the first time? Because mm. I'm sure that, like, the, the the ways we're invoking ideas like word games and private language and family resemblances are probably um, simplifications of the original ideas, and I'm sure you would want to point out maybe, in fact, we're getting it wrong, or at the very least it's more subtle than that. But nonetheless, mm. I do find... You know, I'm not a Wittgenstein scholar at all, so I'm sure the, the the understandings I have in my head of these terms are dumbed down to a degree. But nonetheless, I do find them quite useful. You know what I yes. mean? So how yeah. do you... Yeah, go ahead. Well, they're, they're tools. That's right. They're, they're useful. They're tools. But what you mustn't do is get kind of obsessed with them or fixated on them. And Wittgenstein was very worried that that's what people would do. You know, he, I'm not going to call people out by name, but I can just see in my head a number of MA students who I've met who can't hear a sentence without deconstructing it linguistically with these tools. And it's like, yes, that's very clever, but also mm. we need to convey meaning, even if we, you know, you can be clever about how that meaning's conveyed. Sorry, that was an aside. Go ahead. Yeah, so Wittgenstein was very worried that people would get obsessed with these tools. So Wittgenstein uh, comments at the end of a, a wonderful late series of lectures, the seed I'm most likely to sow is a certain jargon. <laughs> uh, which is, exactly which has happened, people. right? Yeah. He exactly didn't want people to fixate upon these uh, these terms that he's made famous and turn them into something like technical terms or uh, or um, items uh, uh, in a theory which can then be sort of grind ground out in a kind of mechanical uh, way. Um, rather, what he was hoping to do was to stimulate people to to think uh, and to be able to to look and see uh, what is, to look and see how our language works, to look and see uh, how our society works, rather than seeing it all by uh, by way of prejudices or um, predilections. So, what I would say to um, somebody uh, starting in philosophy, maybe, or starting uh, in in Wittgenstein, is I would say philosophy is hard. 
uh, and Wittgenstein is is really very hard. <laughs> um, and um, uh, if you don't feel some of that difficulty, then you're not getting it. There's a lovely story which I think uh, illustrates some of this. So when Wittgenstein first came to uh, England as a young man and studied with uh, with Russell, uh, he went to to some of Moore's lectures, uh, and uh, Russell said to Moore after one of these lectures, "So Moore." What do you think of our German, meaning Wittgenstein? And Moore said to Russell, well, I like him very much. And Russell said to Moore, oh, yes, why is that? And Moore said, well, he's the only one who looks puzzled in my lectures. You know, and that's how one should look in philosophy lectures. One should look puzzled. And so I often say to my students, look, if you're not puzzled in the early stages of the semester, then you're not getting it. If you're not puzzled, then you're not getting it. Um, and I think that Wittgenstein's philosophy, like Moore's philosophy, actually, um, can be uh, deceptive. It can seem as though it's not that hard. Um, both Moore and the later Wittgenstein um, often write um, uh, with a great interest in um, ordinary language, everyday life, etc. The sentences are often quite seemingly uh, straightforward. Um, it doesn't have the kind of gnomic appearance of Wittgenstein's Tractatus. Um, but actually, there's, uh, there is a, a great uh, difficulty or a great set of difficulties lurking here. A good question to ask yourself in relation to Wittgenstein's later writing is, why is this being written? Why am I being told this? Because it can seem either incredibly kind of uh, irrelevant or incredibly obvious. Um, so try to kind of find the purpose of it. Try to find the point of it. Why would somebody say this kind of thing? One answer to that question, why, is quite often, by no means always, but quite often, that Wittgenstein is, as he sometimes puts it, trying to remind you of something. He's trying to remind you of something that you're inclined to forget, um, perhaps because our society occludes it, for example, because our society is so obsessed with science and the methods of science, or perhaps because it's always staring you in the face. Wittgenstein says somewhere, look, some of the most difficult things to see are actually the most obvious things because they're always in front of you. So you miss them because of their familiarity. And Wittgenstein is sometimes trying to remind you of things that are incredibly familiar, but you need to be reminded of them in order to see them so that you don't miss them. So you don't, as it were, stare straight through them. I'm going to... Okay, so th th that's okay. So there's something I want to say here, and you can tell me if you think I'm getting this wrong. Where you do want to caution against going, you know, I've read the family resemblances metaphor. Now I understand. You yeah. Know, you, you know, now I've you know snapped my fingers. Now I've got it. With that being said. I do think there is a sense where even the sort of simplified version of these tools, you want to be careful with them. You want, certainly always want to be careful to say you don't understand everything. Certainly you don't want to always be bringing them up in a manner that's jargonistic. With that being said, I do feel like they sort of get you out of the gutter a bit. Mm, yes. And, you know, a lot of people, there's like a really simple like, set of intellectual ideas that they've heard and they've gone, now I suddenly get what's really happening in the world. 
And for a lot of people, even though I studied economics, this was never me. Once they really wrap their head around the basic supply-demand thing, they're like, oh my god, now everything else falls into place. For other people, it was like, um, you know, the Marxist dialectic and like the, 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 the demystification of objective reality and all of that. Um, and for me, it was sort of getting out of... We all sort of think that, that words have a meaning and there is this thing that's tied to them separate to usage and just sort of getting away from that a bit. And it wasn't all Wittgenstein. I've also been... Um, uh, my tutor at Oxford was Michael Frieden, who takes a very, very linguistic approach mm. to political yeah. theory. And so I was very interested in that and his whole central thesis of um, political belief systems, one of their primary functions being competitions over an ever-fluid and ever-changing language meaning. Yeah. And while... I take all of your notes as to what we might say epistemic caution. I do I do think there is a thing where you can learn a lot of these linguistic tools, and if you approach them with an open mind, um, they, they don't get you into the clouds, but they do get you out of this sort of gutter, and they do just allow you to sometimes see very, very clearly what's going wrong in people's communication with each other all the time. So, I don't know, let, yeah. me, get, let me get your thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I totally agree. So, on the one hand, uh, if I think back, for example, to the first time when I read uh, Philosophical Investigations uh, back in, uh, in Oxford when I was studying with uh, Anthony Kenny and Stephen Mulhall, um, I read, uh, I read the philosophical investigations. I wrote a load of notes on it. I came, I had the opportunity a few years after that to look back on those notes, and I realised that they were now absolutely useless to me. <laughs> that I had had very, very little comprehension of the investigations the first time uh, I read it. But of course, even that experience had had some use. It was a sort of dialectical step or something that I mm. needed to pass through in order to get to a point of being able to use these ideas. And as you've implied. Absolutely, these ideas are there to be used. They're not there to be uh, worshipped. They're not there to be um, argued to be true or false. Uh, They're there to be used. Uh, and one that you mentioned is a very nice example of this is Wittgenstein's concept of uh, of family resemblances, which is a sort of displacement of or a, a, a critique of the traditional way in which uh, in philosophy there's been a kind of uh, very widespread assumption that can be traced back to Socrates and Plato, that what we're trying to do uh, when we do philosophy in relation to words or concepts is to understand their essential meaning, their essence, and then we can project that into new cases. And the family resemblance idea of Wittgenstein's just kind of undermines that presupposition that there must be such an essential uh, uh, meaning. So Wittgenstein famously argues, uh, look, does the word uh, game, does the concept of game uh, have an essence of that kind? Can it be meaningfully defined in terms of something like necessary and sufficient conditions? And he suggests that, uh, that it can't. Uh, and that the consequences, therefore, if many of the most important terms to us in philosophy and beyond philosophy are actually, roughly speaking, family resemblance concepts rather than concepts that uh, that have uh, an essence, uh, well, then that's that does have quite significant consequences. And, of course, one uh, set of those consequences has been traced out in uh, political theory uh, the, with the work of people like uh, 
William Connolly, Stephen Lukes, another of my teachers at Oxford, Michael Frieden, who you mentioned. Um, the, the concept, for example, of essentially contested concepts, the idea yes. that many of our concepts yes. in politics and morality, that it is, if they have an essence, the essence is that they're they are contested, not that the essence is easy to, to pin down, examples being words like power or indeed politics uh, itself. The concept of an essentially contested concept, uh, without doubt, uh, goes back to some extent initially to uh, Wittgenstein's uh, influence on okay. Uh, okay. Pause. philosophy back pause. in the day. because that's so good and um i just want to spend the rest of this interview going through that line of argument and cashing out the key words there because like if you were to draw a pie chart of like the things i've got from philosophy that have impacted me like a big chunk of that pie chart is going to be taken up by some of the terms you've just used so family resemblance is essentially contestable concepts and yeah yeah. so um luke's as well i mentioned freedom luke's is someone who's always worth reading but let's just start let's start with family resemblances because you touched on it but let's really go over this for people who are encountering it for the first time so to start you off um he takes the word game and he says well what is a game and like you know it's a fair question right you don't exactly trip over them um and you know any idea that you might put to it even as a necessary condition much less a sufficient one, you'll find isn't true of all the times that we use the word game in, let's just say, contemporary English or American spoken English, right? So you might say games are competitive, right? Well, what about um, that scene from The Great Escape where he's famously just throwing the baseball against the wall? That's a game, but it's not competitive. You might say Mm. they involve physical activity, but... You know, I played Monopoly with my wife a few nights ago, and um, that doesn't seem particularly physically onerous. And whatever you bring forward, you'll find it, it'll, it'll be present in some uses of the word game, maybe even most uses of the word game, but it won't be present in all of them. And if there's no single thing that's present in all of them, then what are you left with in terms of meaning? And Wittgenstein says, well, hang on, you're assuming meaning is that there is a set of necessary conditions, and instead he uses the metaphor of a family resemblance. Do you want to take us through that side of it? Yeah, absolutely. So let's have a little quote from the Philosophical Investigations Uh, Section 66, it begins, Consider, for example, the proceedings that we call games. I mean board games, card games, ball games, Olympic games, and so on. What is common to them all? So that's the question. That's the traditional philosophical question. What is common to them all? But Wittgenstein is going to respond to that in a very oblique way. He's going to suggest that in a certain sense, there isn't anything that's common to them all. But he doesn't doesn't think that there results from that a sceptical conclusion. He thinks rather what results from that is that we get some kind of clarity on the way that the concept of game and similarly other concepts such as crucially the concept of language is what he's interested in, the concept of language itself, she doesn't have the kind or doesn't necessarily have the kind of nature that philosophers have assumed it, it, uh, it has. So Wittgenstein goes on, don't say there must be something common or they would not be called games. But look and see whether whether there is anything common to all. So this moment where he says, don't say there must be something common is a crucial moment for me. This is where, as I see it, 
nowadays. Wittgenstein is trying to liberate us. He's trying to free us. And this is almost a political aspect to his uh, philosophy. He's trying to free us from assumptions that we're very subject to. He's trying to free us from the, the, the unaware grip of, uh, of dogmas. Um, and anytime there is an alleged must, uh, a metaphysical must, if you will, anytime there's an alleged necessity, then Wittgenstein is uh, suspicious. And in that way, he's highly suspicious of the traditional uh, philosophical um, enterprise. Uh, he goes on, if you look at them, you will, not, you will not see something that is common to all, but similarities, relationships, and a whole series of them at that. To repeat, don't think but look, which is, of course, a remarkable thing for a philosopher uh, to say. What philosophers are endlessly telling each other to do is just think, just think more. And that's what we do. That's what philosophy is, thinking. And Wittgenstein says, well, take a step back, consider the possibility that your thoughts are actually constrained by pictures that are holding you captive. And again, here's the metaphor of liberation very famously uh, uh, in his thought. And that, and that overthinking itself could be uh, uh, a disease. Try to find a way where it's possible for you to actually see, rather, uh, how our language um, actually works. And what Wittgenstein suggests, if we actually look at uh, the great diversity of games that you mentioned before, uh, is that, quote, we see a complicated network of similarities overlapping and crisscrossing, sometimes overall similarities, sometimes similarities of detail. And then he says, in a famous moment, I can think of no better expression to characterize these similarities than family resemblances. For the various resemblances between members of a family build features, color of eyes, gait, temperament, etc., overlap and crisscross in the same way. And I shall say, games form a family. And in the same way, he will say, language forms, uh, forms a family. A family, if you will, of what he calls language games. So this is where I'm going to reference um, what I just said earlier, is I, I take all of your cautionary notes on board. But with that said, once you just let that idea loose in your mind and you let it loose on everything else, including moral and political concepts, that yeah. is just an astoundingly useful bit of software to have running in your brain. That, that, <laughs> yeah, just yeah, just that one bit, uh, you know? Yeah, and it's accessible yeah. it's, to it's, anyone, it's, you know? That's not... Yeah. You don't need yes. to be particularly clever to get that. Well, that's, that's right. There is, a, there is a sense in which much of what Wittgenstein uh, has to offer, and I would argue this is true actually once you get, start to understand it, even of the early philosophy, there is a sense in which um, what's, what he's offering is very simple. It doesn't require cleverness. What it requires, which is much more difficult than cleverness, uh, is, well, you could call it wisdom, which philosophers are always seeking, or you could call it um, the, the will, the willingness to actually look, to set aside your prejudices, to set aside the assumptions with which you are comfortable. So there is a, a very important moment in Wittgenstein's later work where he says, look, the real difficulty in philosophy is not a difficulty of the intellect. People think that philosophy is about being really clever being really intellectually smart. But Wittgenstein says that's not the difficult part of philosophy. The difficult part of philosophy is a matter of will. And he says, I want to try to get you to do something that you don't want to do. I want to break your habits of, of thinking that you have to look at things in such and such a way, being constrained unawarely uh, by thoughts, by ideologies, by, by prejudices. That's what philosophy is really all about for Wittgenstein. So... 
This might sound like a bizarre lateral move, but I'm going to bring it back in. I just had a really good conversation with um, Philip Pettit, and we used the analogy of money. And bear with me for a minute here. Um, in that a lot of people feel that there must be some sort of intrinsic value to money, right? That, like... Um, and, and they get leery about, like, fiat currencies for that reason, right? It's not, it's in big quotes, not real. But then you can tell a very simple story where you sort of say, imagine a barter economy in which there is no money, and you produce uh, corn, and I produce wicker furniture, and you want to get some of my wicker furniture, but I don't want any of your corn. Well, the solution would be we'd all just sort of agree at the end of the day that there's one good we're all happy to hold. It might be gold, but in other economies it might be another precious metal, um, apparently in prisons it's cigarettes, you know, this sort of thing. And once you tell that story, you get to the point where you say there's actually nothing about the gold. You know, it's just a, a collective agreement we all have on the basis of it. But now the problem there with telling that story to people isn't any sort of intellectual cleverness required to understand it. The problem is we have this hardwired instinct that there's something about, there's some property of the gold that's giving it its value. There's some property of the banknote that's giving it its value. And we have an instinct when it comes to moral terms, what is right, what is just, what is whatever, that there's some property of that word that goes beyond just our shared understanding of what that word is. And there goes to even something like game, there's just this prejudice that it, it must track to something. It can't just be this Venn diagram where there's no point in the middle of the Venn diagram where you can put a pin. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the, the real challenge comes in getting people to just step even for a moment, outside of those prejudicial commitments. And again, you're right, it's not cleverness, and you don't need jargon for it. It's more just a sort of, like, flexibility is maybe the wrong word, an, an, an openness, an openness yes, to stand yes. somewhere else. Yes. And, like, the money one actually really bugs me as someone who was made to endure economics, is that there's no intrinsic worth to any sort of money, including something very tangible like gold. It's just consent. That's it. Locke had it right, you know? And mm. I think that is the value you get from Wittgenstein, is just, like, how liberating it can be to step outside of these things. I talked for a bit. I'd, I'd love your thoughts. Yeah. So, um, money is trust, we might say. Yes. Right? Money is trust. Uh, and I think that's an eminently uh, Wittgensteinian uh, thought. Um and uh, indeed, I've done uh, Wittgensteinian philosophy of money uh, myself. Uh, I've published uh, on it. Um, uh, and as I, you I, say, didn't, I didn't know that. That was just my last yeah, conversation yeah. coming it, in. It just yeah. makes total sense to, to, to me. You know, all these things fit together. Having a kind of... Um, we don't have to get obsessed always with looking for the object, which is allegedly the referent of a word. And instead, focusing on the actual uh, richness of uh, of uh, of use as something that we uh, do, um, that's the the Wittgensteinian way here. Uh, and let me give a, a quotation again from Philosophical Investigations, which illustrates this very nicely, I think. So Wittgenstein is talking 
is is here um, seeking to engage, as it were, with somebody who uh, thinks that um, meaning must be a matter of the object for which a word stands, uh, rather than anything to anything like um, the use to which we put words. Uh, so this is the end of philosophical investigations, section one two zero. Wittgenstein writes: You say the point isn't the word, but its meaning. And you think of the meaning as a thing of the same kind as the, as the word, though also different from the word. Here the word, there the meaning. The money and the cow that you can buy with it. But contrast, Wittgenstein says, money and its use. So as it were, Wittgenstein is saying there, look, if you want to get a clear picture of how linguistic meaning works, of how linguistic meaning is a matter of use, rather than a matter of um, the objects through, for which words allegedly stand, like in a, a dictionary or something, um, then actually the analogy of money is one that could actually help you. Because if you focus on the way that actually, if you will, money is its use, money lives uh, in its use, uh, if you've got a pile of notes standing there, um, well, they're, they're nothing. They're just pieces of paper. Where they actually have their power is where they where they get used uh, on the basis of uh, of a fundamental trust or a fundamental institution. So the money and the cow that you can buy with it, that's kind of like thinking that, that you've got a word and then the object which it stands for. But contrast, Wittgenstein says, money and its use. Now you start to get a picture of the way he envisages uh, language uh, and meaning uh, as being very closely tied in with its use. Uh, and you see the way that you can kind of flip this either way, this kind of analogy between uh, money and meaning. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Coming up next week, we'll conclude this series with Dr. Rupert Reed on Wittgenstein. So in the first part, we talked about Wittgenstein, his life, and his approach to the philosophy of language. In the next part, we're going to ask what all of that means. What does it mean when we start applying this approach to language and to word meaning, to words like freedom and justice and power, and even politics itself? And we end up discussing almost debating, actually, whether it's possible to ever truly escape the political, to escape politics, to carve out spaces for ourselves that are not impacted by power and political considerations. And that turns out to be a really interesting back and forth, so I hope you'll come back and join us for that. Then the week after, as I said, I'll get back to the Libertarianism series. And for those of you who haven't checked it out, I encourage you to go and check out the first part that I did, which is just called Libertarianism and Ideological History. And so what I'm attempting to do there is I think there's a lot of, like, content on podcasts or blogs or whatever about, like, whether liberalism or libertarianism or socialism is right or wrong, I don't think there's as much good stuff as to what they are in the first place. What are the material circumstances that led to their creation? How do we understand the essential function of political belief systems? What do they do, in other words? Uh, particularly for, like, the modern era. So, like, if you asked me for good resources on history of political thought, I could provide you with a lot of stuff. But on the formation of modern ideologies like liberalism, socialism, libertarianism, 
I don't know, there's less stuff, so maybe that's more of like a niche to fill. So I'm going to be getting back to that episode. In the first part of the series, we covered the origins of libertarianism in figures like Herbert Spencer in the late 1800s, reacting as they were to both material circumstances like the Industrial Revolution, urbanization, but also to ideologies such as progressive liberalism that they felt had gotten away from the quote-unquote real liberalism. In the next part, I'm going to track the development of that ideology through the turn of the century, how it interacted with ideas like the market, like the field of economics, and more controversially, I'm going to argue that both that and progressive liberalism were hugely impacted by popular awareness of the theory of evolution. So, that's what's coming out over the next few weeks. I hope you'll stay tuned. As always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, so you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud. Um, if you have, like, a, a podcast-playing app on your phone, you can pretty much always find us on those. Um like CastBox I've been using, uh, Podcast Catcher, there's a whole bunch of them. And as always, just quickly, finally, big thank you to everyone who signed up to sponsor us on Patreon. This show has no corporate sponsors, and we do not do advertisements, because advertisements are icky. They spoil long-form podcast conversations, they make them worse, and they undermine their credibility. So... My commitment to you is never to do ads on the show, so the show is entirely made possible by ch people chipping in whatever they can. If you have a couple of bucks spare, we would love to have them to keep this podcast going, so check out patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, to donate any amount, and you can also check out our website, which is just politicalphilosophypodcast.com, or if you just Google Political Philosophy Podcast or my name, it's the first thing that comes up. So, thank you again for listening. I'm really, actually, I'm really excited for what we've got coming out over the next few weeks. The second part, I thought this was a good episode, I hope you'll agree, and then the second part really takes it to the next level. So, I hope you'll come back for that. And I'm also childishly excited to get back to um, the Ideological History series that I've been doing. So if you're not subscribed, please subscribe, and I hope you'll return. So yeah, thanks again for listening. Hope you'll come back then. Mm -hmm.